You're listening to episode 59 of the Journey to Launch podcast. An honest look at the personal finance crisis with Elizabeth White, who was 55 and faking normal. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome back to another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. I'm excited to bring you this conversation that I had with Elizabeth White. Elizabeth, I found actually through a TED Talk, I was mentioned or someone added me in her talk on Twitter. I went to it and I was just blown away by her story by her honesty about what she's been through in her life with her finances. And the topic of her TED Talk was called 55 and Faking Normal. Actually, it's also had another name. So when I went to the TEDx site, it was also called An Honest Look at the Personal Finance Crisis. And in this TED Talk, Elizabeth tells a story that Many of you who are listening probably have either seen your parents go through or maybe you're going through, but she's talking about how she ended up, even after having a well-paying job, even after getting an education, she still ended up unprepared in her later years for retirement. And she landed somewhere where she did not expect to be with her finances. And she talks about that honestly in this TED Talk. And I wanted her to come on the podcast and share this with us, share all the information that she's gathered along the way and how she is now helping other people bring forth their honesty with their personal finance. And especially people who are a bit older, who feel a little maybe ashamed that they're not where they need to be or where they want to be. She's giving people that ability to speak up and say, hey, look, I'm in trouble or hey, I'm not where I thought I'd be at this age. I need some help. And I think this also will be a nice cautionary tale for some younger folks. So if you're not necessarily close to retirement, you're maybe a little bit younger in your 20s or 30s, you can hear Elizabeth's story and see what you can do to maybe avoid landing in that situation. And I think it's actually interesting because Elizabeth talks about doing a lot of things right. So she went to school, had a good paying job, was an entrepreneur, and she still ended up this way. So this means that no one's really that safe. No one's that insulated from maybe some market downturns or being fired from their job or losing income, right? So how can we protect ourselves? How can we land on our feet? Or if we even land where we don't want to land, how do we pick ourselves back up and move forward and make the best of it? Before we get into this conversation with Elizabeth, just want to say if you want the episode show notes for this, so anything that we mention in this talk with Elizabeth, because I mentioned a lot of things, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episodes 59. There you'll see the episode show notes. Also, as I always say, if you are enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to share this with your family and friends. You can do that by just sharing it on your Facebook page, your Facebook profile, Instagram, Twitter, 
at me, tell other people to listen. I love when you guys do that and share what you thought of the episode. It really, really makes me see that, okay, this is hitting home. You're getting something from this. Also, if you are listening to this in Apple Podcast, that's that purple app. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. I read every review. Okay, so let's get into this conversation with Elizabeth. I'm telling you, I really think this is gonna be a really really good one where you guys are going to resonate with what she has to say. So let's get started. Hey, Journeyers. I'm really, really excited to have today's podcast guest, Elizabeth, Elizabeth White. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you doing? I'm great and happy to be here. Thank you. I am so happy to have you on this podcast and I'm going to give a background about you, but I came across your TEDx talk And it was so powerful. I mean, the title that said was 55 Unemployed and Faking Normal. And as I dig more into your story, into your background, into your bio, which we'll get into so people know who we're talking to, it resonated with me. And I feel like your story is going to resonate with a lot of listeners. So can you just just quick, like, who was Elizabeth White? I mean, you have extensive history and accomplishment background. So can you just share who you are? Yeah. So I'll just do some of the main points. So I am army brat, moved around 14 times in 12 years, lived all over the place, Libya, Germany, Italy, which got me interested in international studies and working on Africa. Went to Oberlin undergraduate, and then got a master's degree from John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Ended up at the World Bank in a great program, dream job. Got there, saw that many people had PhDs, which I did not have. And so I was feeling like a little bit sort of odd man out and had the opportunity to go back to school and get a Harvard MBA, which I did. Got there, caught the entrepreneurial bug. My degree, just in an incredible stroke of good fortune, was paid for by the World Bank, but I did owe them a number of years' work. So came back, put the time in, but caught the entrepreneurial bug while I was at Harvard and started a business. You always start a business optimistically. It was a retail business. I had no retail experience. I got great partners, some very prominent names in the business, people who helped me. And when you have investors, you have to put skin in the game. So I put a lot of my savings in it. Early on, a business is not always successful enough to support you. So I was putting money in the business and living on really my retirement savings, thinking that the business would grow to be really successful and I would be able to earn it all back. Business lasted for about eight, nine years, which is long actually for a startup. But ultimately, I was not able to grow it to the size that I needed to grow it. It was a retail business where I was sourcing a lot of products from African entrepreneurs It was an Afrocentric lifestyle store. I grew it. I was in Washington. I was in Philadelphia. I was in New York. I had multiple locations. So it did well enough, but not well enough for me to see living on that forever. And so 
closed the business in the early 2000s, thinking I have this really great background. I'll just slide into something else. And I never did get the nine to five job, but I did pull together. In 2002, around there is before we called it sharing and gig economy, but that's actually what I was doing. So I had one consultancy that was supposed to last for seven months, lasted for seven years, then shortly got another one that was supposed to last one year, lasted four, and that combined income was great. I had a lot of flexibility. I was doing what I loved doing, and then the recession hit 2008, 2009. And when you are a consultant and the organization you work for does one of these retrenchments, you're going to go. So I was among the group as they were scaling back, weathering the storm of that recession, lost both of those jobs within a six-month period. So went from a very decent income to zero over that period of time. And at that point, I was Mm mid-50s. And what I noticed when I was looking for work at that point was one, we're in a recession, so it's going to be much harder. But I'm thinking, you know, I have a Harvard MBA. I have a master's in international studies. I've worked at the World Bank. I have the fabulous network. And just my phone was not ringing. And we often have friends who are 10 years older than younger. So some of my network was going to be 65 or older. And so many people had retired from the network. Some people had even died. So I was in this period, still trying to hang on, doing what I always did, going to the networking events and hearing speakers. And there's always like, okay, let's meet for a coffee. Let's go for a drink. Let's have dinner afterwards. I'm trying to front when I did not have the income anymore. Nobody wanted to go to what would be Applebee's. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm in DC. They're wanting to go to the coolest watering hole, new place, or even small plates and a drink. You're looking at almost $50. Right. You want to keep up appearances and maintain your lifestyle. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're also, because these are people who may hire you. These are people who may recommend somebody to hire you. So you're wanting to be in the circle. So I started noticing with women friends of mine, you'd be someplace and someone who would order a Chardonnay is now ordering mineral water. Or you yourself are passing up on the entree, or you're just getting a salad, or You see people who used to always be part of the circle starting to decline invitations. Or you see somebody who's always on point looking a little run down at the edges, long between hair appointments or whatever it is. And women, we often talk. You can be sitting on the plane next to a stranger, and by the time you get to where you're going, you've had a really meaningful conversation. So few of us started talking. And my network, I know Emmy Award-winning producers. I know people who were rolling. And we shared stories. And all of us were struggling, looking at downward mobility for the first time. And it was scary because of our age. And At one point of just time of despair, I sat down and I just wrote this 
essay. And the essay described, what is it like to land here when you're not used to being here? What's it like to be moving into used to be and formally? What's it like to not see kind of a way out of this? And you're sort of wandering around in the land of the poor people, is how one friend put it, hoping not to take up permanent residency. So I wrote this essay, sent it around, it got picked up and ended up on PBS's Facebook page. And within a short time, like two, three days, it had 11,000 likes and over a thousand comments. And I was stunned because I'm thinking, this is sort of the story of a few women friends of mine. Maybe it'll resonate with a few more people. And then it had this big response. And I started reading the comments. And people now can find you online. So people found my email address. And so in the comment section, they might write a short paragraph or a few sentences. When they wrote me, they sent me an email, it would be a page and a half, single space of what had happened to them. And so many people were writing. And I have the background, I can look at the data. So when I started looking at the data, I was astonished at the retirement income crisis that we're facing. And I was astonished that we're not having a national conversation about this because boomers may be the first ones confronting these kinds of financial challenges in these numbers, but millennials are right behind us because you're not going to have a pension either. You have a trillion dollars worth of student loan debt. And so it's not just a pesky little boomer problem. This is a national crisis that is going to sweep all the way through various age cohorts, and we're not talking about it, and we're not addressing it. So I can see uh, my TEDx talk was recently elevated. They take a few TEDx talks, and they put them on the main TED platform. And in the first week, it had 500,000 views. I'm getting 10 to 15,000 views a day. So people are sending this around because they want to have this conversation. People are saying, this is my sister, my brother, my father, this is me. And the book came out of all the people that I spoke with. And there were many people who were further along on the journey than I was, who had found ways to adjust, to cope, to bob and weave and pivot that I thought, Calvary's not coming. Right. There's no government bailout that's going to happen, especially now. So what can we do from where we're sitting? Wait, what a background. What a story that's led you up to this point. And there's so much more to it. And I just want to frame because some of my listeners have not heard the TED Talk yet. I'm sure they're going to now go listen to it and watch your speech. But Really, like you said, you're talking about this crisis, your personal crisis, financial crisis of coming to a point where now you're facing retirement or you'd like to retire or you're at that age and you're not prepared for it. 
And I think it's so relevant to everyone who's listening, whether you're older at the retirement stage or younger, like myself, maybe you have 20 more years, 30, 40, whatever it is of working years that you'd like to still work. And then confront that with this movement that has become very popular. It's something I'm in, the financial independent retire early movement. And I find that this want and idea of, okay, I don't want to become that person who can't retire or who can't at least provide for myself and not have planned properly. So I'm going to try and make sure I'm set up properly and save enough and pay off debts and do all this. And hey, if I can do it earlier than the normal age, if I can retire early, even better. So I feel as though there's so many things to unpack and to talk about with what you just said. But I want to talk about, you mentioned the book. So this then became a book called 55 Underemployed and Thinking Normal, right? Yeah. So a couple of things have happened. So I did the book, I self-published it, and it's called 55 Unemployed and Thinking Normal. Unemployed. Okay. But I then got a Simon & Schuster book deal. I haven't talked about it a lot yet, but I'm going to, towards the end of this month, because we're now nearing completion of the second edition of the book. And the second edition of the book is called 55 Underemployed and Faking Normal. And the book came out of the essay and then the many, many conversations that I had with people over a year. And I want to just clarify one point about many of us boomers are not feeling like we really want to retire in the sense of go to Florida and sit in a rocking chair or play golf all day. One of the things that's happened is with advances in medical technology and public health and ability to diagnose illness earlier and treat it, is that I'm 64 now and I'm in good health, knock on wood. And many of my friends are wanting to stay engaged and be in the workforce, but in the way that we want to be in the workforce. Mm -hmm. The retirement income crisis is also about you want to continue to work and you can't find work or you find work. I saw a statistic the other day that said over the last 10 years, 6.6 million more workers 55 and older are holding jobs. What they don't tell you is that 52% of those jobs pay 15000 a year or under. It's not just a jobs crisis. It's a good jobs crisis. Mm-hmm. I'm not not wanting to work. It is, can I find work? And many people, can they find work that is commensurate with their background, their interests, their education, somewhere in the salary range they were making before? And that answer is no. Right. And you talked about this. You mentioned this in your speech that there's a whole three-legged retirement stool, which we'll talk about and why it's so important and how that's wobbly now. That stool is broken. But the stool is made up of the old pension or having a company pay for part of your retirement. So pension saving. So the individual who have saved for themselves, so that the 401k or your Roth or whatever that is, and then social security. And you talked about in your speech how back in 1935, a 21-year-old had a 50% chance of living until they were 65. So if they retired at 60, they only had five years to go about and have to live off of whatever they had amassed in their retirement. 
pool. But nowadays, it's way more than that. People are living longer, retiring at 65 or 60 in the traditional sense, and to not work actively for income, that's almost impossible unless you started very early or you really saved up enough to sustain you for the whole time. Yeah, we're looking now at the 100-year life. I've seen studies that say half the 10-year-olds today will live till 100. And that is a long runway if you are already struggling in your 50s or 60s to put together the money for three or four decades when you can't work with a living wage now. That's the crisis that we're looking at. That's one I'm not sort of through with my research on it, but I'm looking at the options of basic income. And we are at a point where if we don't address it, we will have older Americans living in some very, very dire situations. And many of them will be women because our lifespan is longer. And we're not going to have to read about these people. The stories are not going to just come in on our newsfeed, on our phone. These are going to be people we know. This will be your mother or your sister or yourself. That's really how serious the retirement income crisis is. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what led us here. And so there are like different factors. There's your self-behavior. So what you've done to get you to this point, why maybe you, you didn't have enough saved. There are systemic factors that have led us to this point. So can we talk about the personal behavioral stuff that you can even use yourself as an example that you now know that you should have done differently put you in the position where you are. And then let's talk about the things you couldn't control. Like, let's be honest about that and talk about that. So I think it's important for us to all stand in mistakes that we've made personally. I don't stand here as a victim. I don't feel like a victim. And there are clearly, that's one of the things I say in the TED Talk, if you rifle through my life, look at everything, you're going, mm, you shouldn't have gone to that restaurant. Oh, look at that dress she bought. You're going to find stuff. You will find stuff. And you look at anybody's life, you scrutinize it like that, you're going to find choices that they made that you wouldn't make, that you thought are frivolous, wasteful, or whatever. Okay, put that first. There are bigger things. When you look at flat and falling wages, now this is a situation where have been in now for a while. When you look at a millennial's trillion dollars worth of debt, a millennial I was talking to recently said, uh-huh, yeah, it's all that avocado toast I'm eating. That's why I don't have a house, right? <laughs> you look at escalating cost in healthcare. These are things that are systemic, that are going to impact us personally. And I also say, beware of the glowing economics you're hearing now. You're going to hear 3.8 unemployment. You have to know in that number, anybody who stopped looking a year or more ago is not counted in that number. And there are many people, if you've put out dozens, 
hundreds of applications and you're barely hearing back, the numbers of people, they call them discouraged workers who dropped out of the workforce. So that number is probably twice what you hear it is. When you look at Older Americans now, a surge in the number of people over 65 filing uh, bankruptcy. And it's very serious when you file bankruptcy at that age because you don't have the years necessarily to recover. I was listening to a show yesterday and a bankruptcy lawyer was saying under some circumstances, bankruptcy can be a tool in the toolkit. You've got to do it and it can have a longer term positive outcome but not for older people. For a younger person, you have the time to recover. So we have a situation where we see jobs, but they're not jobs that can support people. We see a 4.1 GDP growth that's considered good. And you have kind of all of these other indicators that Americans are not doing well. My book is really about what we can do as individuals from where we're sitting. Because right now, what we see in our legislators, we see a shredding of the safety net. We see a punishing of poor people or poor bashing. And what's happened is that all of a sudden, people who have been doing well all their lives, are struggling, are looking at downward mobility for the first time. So if you've been listening to a lot of talk radio that does a lot of poor bashing and it does a lot of, if you're struggling, you're somehow morally deficient and you're a loser. And right now, that's you. Yeah, I think that's why your story resonates, because I think it's one thing if maybe going to look at someone who didn't have the education and didn't, quote unquote, know better, right, that finds himself in this situation, then it's kind of easier to point the blame at them. I think some people find it easier to do that. But I feel like because you had the education, you had the background, you had the well-paying job, and you still ended up in that situation, I feel is a wake-up call for a lot of people who are in denial that this can happen to anyone. And then for people who are in denial about it for themselves, that this is your reality. You've been maybe living on your credit cards and you haven't been able to pay your expenses really because you failed to realize your new reality. I love that now you talk about what can we do because acknowledgement, bring it to the forefront, trying to get some change in the system is great but we can only have autonomy over what we can do for ourselves at this point. And so that's what I want to talk about. What now can we do? So this is a tale for two types of people. It's a tale for someone listening saying, wow, Elizabeth, I am you. I am in this situation. I'm older. I found myself not being able to retire or to sustain my living. What can I do? And then I find for the younger people listening, okay, I hear you, Elizabeth, and I don't want to be there. What can I do? So it's almost like, what can you tell those two sets of people? And I want to add one more systemic thing that is huge and overarching, which is ageism. And ageism is important because to the extent that older people are marginalized, 
then it means things like this. I was hearing that statistic in New York City where 20% of the people are older adults, but in terms of the budget for services for older adults, it's well under 2%. And the reason this is important is everybody's going to be older. As I said, boomers are just the first of this hill. And when you can't get work because you're considered too old, even though 55, 60 is not what it used to be, that is going to meaningfully limit your ability to support yourself. And so that ageism piece, which means marginalization, which means that's why you can't find work, that's why there are no programs to support you, et cetera, is another huge systemic thing. So let me now move to the two questions you posed. There are two parts of it. One is I had to look at consumption, what I was spending my money on. And I started to think about, let's say I never earned the kind of money that I used to earn. Let's say I teach at a local university, I do consulting here and there, but it's less than a quarter of what I used to earn. And and what if this is a permanent situation? Maybe that you know it'll fluctuate up and down, but that the income range I'm in now is significantly less. So how do I hold that and think about it? I talk some in the TED Talk about this. What do I need to feel grounded and content? What is the real source of my happiness? One of the things we're taught in our culture is we buy the emotions we want. And that buying of the emotions we want can lead into all kinds of purchases to validate ourselves. It can be the kind of car, it can be the kind of clothes, it can be the kind of clubs we join, it can be all of that. What if I'm not trying to buy the emotions I want? I take that time to understand the source of my contentment. And it's going to be different, me to you to somebody else. Somebody else might spend way more money on some crazy weed whacker because they're a gardener and that they'll spend the money on that than I would spend. I'm a foodie type person. I like the new restaurant. I read about the chef. I like that. Somebody else is like, why are you eating out? I could make that. Well, I couldn't make that. For me, then, can I figure out for those things that give my life meaning, which may be different than what gives your life meaning, a way to have some of those things still in my life? So it can be maybe I go to a restaurant and you divide the entree, or you go during happy hour. I had a colleague that I used to work with last year, we went at the happy hour. It was like 40% less because all the drinks were half, you know, all of that. 
Now, this to somebody else, they're rolling their eyes because they wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. I was thinking of my friend who is a musician and spent, like I thought, an astronomical amount on a flute. But his cars are raggedy. His clothes are raggedy. What he cares about in terms of his happiness is music. Mm -hmm. Somebody else might have something else. So that was really getting a handle on what does it mean to have a richly textured and connected life on a modest income. And then just to add to that, it's just because you are talking about spending on the things you value. And it allows you then to look at the things you're spending on that don't bring that happiness or it's not a big return on happiness. So you cut back on that. So it's the whole concept of you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. Paula Pant says this. uh, She's another podcaster. And I love that quote because it really forces you to say, hey, if you want to go out and spend money at that restaurant because you value that experience and the food fine. But then you also need to look at your income, your budget and say, okay, but where do I have to cut back on to be able to enjoy and have that experience? In my case, I've lived in my house for 33 years. I refinanced once. That's why it's not paid off, but my mortgage is really low. I missed the big house phase. I don't have to downsize. I'm already downsized because I live in the same place I did when I was 30. I have a Fiat 500 and I'm not someone who buys a new car or leases a new car every two years. My car, I drive till they die. When the Pope was here in 2015, my grandson calls it a sled (laughs) more than a car. (laughs) I went through the high strung car phase. I don't need to do that now. So I love the expression, you can't have everything, but how does it go? You can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. Yeah, I like that. So that's one piece of it on the consumption side. The other side is really looking at the whole thing of sharing. I was at a dinner a few months ago, and there was a woman there. She was an American of Italian descent, and she was talking about her 27-year-old son who lived with her. And immediately at the dinner party. It's, oh, failure to launch. It's terrible. And so she was looking at us like, what's wrong with my son living with me? And I lived as a little girl. We lived in Italy for five years. And I remember seeing these families of the great grandmother and the grandmother, the mother and adult children. Everybody was living together. So we have this thing here where you have to live on your own. Everybody needs their own lawnmower. You need your own snow blower. That adds a lot to consumption. And this premium priority we put on, you've got to be 21 out on your own, in your own apartment. And if you're not doing that, you're a failure is ridiculous. The woman who is saying, my son, he is working, he's able to save money, he's a great guy, young man. So we do this thing to younger people where it is a failure to live with your parents. And it shouldn't be as you are learning how to save money, etc. 
Mm, I so agree because I can relate to that myself. And I know a couple of my friends are just in general can because in my case, I lived at home when I graduated college for two years while I saved up enough money to be able to then move into the condo that I had bought. And then even when my husband and I got engaged, we moved out of that condo because we needed to save money and we moved into his parents' basement. And it wasn't a matter of, oh, we're failures and, you know, we were bums doing that. It was, we had intentions. Our families, thankfully, had that space to have us be able to be there. And we were saving. We were very intentional about what we were doing. So in the case of the Italian lady and so many other probably people who probably have done this, it's not if you have children that are ambitious or there's a reason why they're home, they're finding themselves or they are working, they're saving, they're not just taking you for granted and running up the bills. That's a different situation. Yeah. But a lot of that is just, it's okay. Like you can stay here as long as you need. So that way, when you do launch, you're launched for good. Or you, maybe you don't need to come back because you're such a stable ground. And then also sharing. In my book, I had one friend who said, Elizabeth, this better not be a talkathon. You better have some resources in this book. So in the book, I have over a hundred links to all kinds of resources on sharing, whether it is roommate or housemate and how do you find someone to live with? Because we got to admit, sometimes we love our friends. We couldn't live with them. <laughs> right. I have periodically had a roommate as one of the things to help me sort of stretch resources. So those are kind of on the consumption side. On the income side, I talk in the TED Talk and in the book about getting off my throne. And when you're used to rolling a certain way, and I remember getting an offer for a consulting assignment a little over a year ago, I was annoyed when I got this offer. I'm looking at the hourly rate they're proposing to pay me, and I was like huffy. And a friend of mine, dear friend, talked me off the cliff because you're so used to getting more. And one of the things she said to me that was important that I hadn't considered, she said, I want you to look at the non-dollar value of this work. And the work involved an opportunity for me to go around and talk about this topic, which I'm very committed to doing. And that then got me in front of different audiences and it introduced me to other people. And I think it's part of what led to the Simon & Schuster book deal. So Getting off the throne, sometimes you don't know where something's going to lead you. I have a PhD economist friend who ended up working at the container store, but she was in the inventory management. So she learned about their inventory management system, the technology behind it. And she was explaining how in some other interview that helped her knowing it. So sometimes you don't know that job that you are like aghast and appalled that you got offered the money that you were offered, given your education, all of this, there might be something in that that you can build on that will serve you later. So that's a bit of a mindset shift. 
Yeah. And just adding on to that, that whole idea, and you said this in your talk, think strategy, not failure to help you process what's a good decision or not. And then also looking at things and stepping out of the ego. So in relation to that, sharing things with other people or taking on things that seem quote unquote beneath you or wow, like you're cleaning homes on the weekend, you already have a nine to five. Why do you need to do that? Or you have extra jobs. Some people might look at that and say, well, that means I've failed. And it's like, no, that strategy, because you're working towards a goal of whether that's paying off debt or just being able to sustain your living expenses. And it's funny because I have three kids and I have no ego when it comes to people giving us clothes. And you'd be surprised how many people who want to give us clothes say, well, you know, I don't know because some people are so funny about this. They don't like hand-me-downs. And I'm like, listen, give me all of your hand-me-downs. I'll take everything because if that means now I don't have to go out and spend $100, $200 on clothes, I'll take that. I don't look at that as I should be ashamed of it. But you can tell by the response of the people who give it to me that they get that response sometimes, that people do feel shameful in taking hand-me-downs or having to share things. And this whole concept of stepping outside of the ego and looking at it as, no, this is not failure. I can technically go out and buy my kids new clothes, but that's not great strategy for our finances. I'm going to take it and hopefully I can then now pass on clothes to other people who want it, need it to save money. So definitely just a mind shift. Great. I think that's a great example. It's exactly the kind of thinking, a strategy, not failure. Because the reason I say that is when people start running that failure tape in their head, it just spirals and it can paralyze you. It can put you in this mindset where you are in such a place of despair that you can't function. And that's why I say in the TED Talk, if you need food stamps, get them. Just think of it as strategy, not failure. Do what you have to do to survive another round. And I love the example about clothes. I mean, I was someone, I still like clothes. I mean, I find I'm an African-American woman that looking a certain way, walking into a room gives me 10 more minutes to make an impression. I've seen it happen. So I shop in my closet. I do consignment. I'm not nearly as invested in going to the places that I used to go to, to buy clothes. I mean, I still really presentable. I'm still sort of inside my band of how I want to move through the world and my aesthetic and all of that. Now, again, somebody else, this may not matter whatsoever. Then when you look at what will ground you, you won't spend any money on that. Somebody may decide they want only new clothes for their children. I think it's worth looking at. I'm not surprised that people would hesitate when they offer that because they've probably gotten a lot of blowback in the past. Mm -hmm. A lot of the tips and things we're talking about to help people through this currently, and whether that's saving more money, making more money, it's very relevant to the FIRE movement. So have you heard of the Financial Independent Retire Early Movement? Just sort of peripherally. I've not dug into that. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like this is an uprising almost, like a revolt against a traditional retirement. 
And just like you, when you said in the beginning, the retirement part of it is not retiring and doing nothing. I find that most people who are in this movement, even myself, when I talk about becoming financially independent and being able to retire early, it doesn't mean I'm never going to work and I want to go, quote unquote, go on the beach all day and drink mojitos. Now, I'd love to do that sometimes, right? But that's, I know I want to bring work into this world. I'd love to generate income. And so I think that thought process of what retirement means needs to change because if you think of it in a traditional sense, then you might blow past the idea of this whole movement. But what I like about everything you're saying is really that's what the financial independent retire early movement says. It encourages all of this. It encourages side hustling and cutting back on expenses that are not necessary and finding what a textured life means, what it means to be happy. So you're not spending without care or without reason. And from your perspective, really never knowing what this was, now you kind of have an idea of what it is, that there are people who are coming upon this idea of the FIRE movement. And now hopefully they can start earlier than you did or recognize, hey, if I make these changes today, maybe I'll never reach financial independence per se, quote unquote, in the sense that I'll never need to work again, but I'll be in a such better place for starting this journey than I would be if I didn't. I'll tell you, this has been such an interesting pathway for me. I don't regret the entrepreneurship part of it. I have some dear friends that came with me through that. Even this part, which has sort of evolved organically to, as I said, at a point of despair, writing an essay that turned into a book, a book deal, a TED Talk, all of that has sort of I step and I hope the ground is there. And I'm someone in the world who feels there are experiences happening to us that are to guide and teach us. And I have had moments and times where you're just going to get in the bed. You're going to be crying. You're going to be upset. That's all part of it. And this isn't some like rags to riches story. This is, I have cut way back to a point where my life works. It's working. There are still some aspect of digging out of the hole because I was kind of struggling there for a period of time. But I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't feel like some train barreling down on. But every piece of it, I embrace. Because it's led you here, right? It's led you to be able to tell this story, which is, I believe, helping a lot of people. So come out of the shame and share, hey, this is happening to me currently. Right. And how can I get past this? And you talk about something called resilient circles, which I love. I'm going to let you explain it. But I think also it's so great because I think podcasts and online communities and you have almost these virtual resilient circles. So explain what a resilient circle is. One of the things that I think really saved me was the scaffolding around me that allowed me to be here and content was a community of people. It didn't have to be a lot of people. It can be two people. I think of four in addition to my mother and daughter, we were all kind of going through this. So we would share resources and information. One 
friend of mine, we must have borrowed the same $300 back and forth a dozen times. When she had money, I had money and vice versa. She was also the person who you need someone who can hold up a mirror to you and remind you who you are when you feel like it's all coming apart. Who can remind you what you know can remind you what you're capable of. And this is why I think it's really important to see if you can get a group together. So a couple of things here. One, we're having a loneliness crisis in this country. If you just Google that, you'll see there are many people, especially older adults, who, for whatever reasons, have moved away from a network, have over time lost touch with friends and don't have a circle. And in those cases, I think of church. There are a lot of churches that have financial independence groups or other groups that are looking at how to make better choices financially, get out of debt, etc., You can raise with them the possibility of reading this book together and that were a few circles formed. Because with this book, what I did was at the end of each chapter, I put the kind of questions, some of which you're asking me and some that my small group asked itself around elitism. I didn't have to ask my daughter to give me money to take my grandson out to eat. Most of his life, I didn't need to do that, but there was a period of time I had to do that. You feel some kind of way about that. You need a place where you can be with other people and talk about this, talk about what's happened to you. I also recommend libraries. Libraries now have become amazing community centers. They have book clubs and chess clubs. It's your library. If you're at a place where you are struggling in such a way that you can't even buy the book. Get your library to order it and get your library to help you to form a resilient circle where you can begin to work through some of these issues and get to the other side. So that's what I really recommend because doing this by yourself is crazy making. Mm. Those tapes will run. You'll be a loser. Next thing you know, I call it awfulizing. You go for an interview. You don't get called back right away. Next thing you know, you think your last boss said something negative. You're going to lose your house. You can get into where you're then reacting to an imaginary future. The other thing I would say, the reason for the resilience circle, when you've been here a long time, you will leak your despair and your upset. So when you do have an opportunity to go for an interview or meet someone who's critical, they won't know exactly why something with you is off. You may not be aware that you're leaking what you have been experiencing. It may be you're sitting too far forward in the chair, you look too, they will sense something about you. 
but they don't know if they want you in their work environment. So I see the resilience circle also as a place to kind of offload the frustration, to talk to people who are in the same situation so that when you go into a setting where you're going to have to perform, that you're not leaking this sort of vague malaise that you're feeling because of where you've landed. So resilience circle, a group to process some of this. And then also there was a period at one point where there was a program that would, under certain criteria, would cover your mortgage for a few months. I heard about that program from someone in the circle. There was another program. I didn't end up using this one, but she was talking about vouchers that you could go to all these farmers markets and these vouchers, you could go and get fresh fruit and vegetables. So also your resilience circle can be a place where information is shared. The resources that are out there, books that other people are reading, podcasts that other people are listening to, all of these things help you as you are traveling through this period. And really what it is, is community. It's community, beginning to build your community. Elizabeth, I agree so much with that. And I feel like resilience circle, part, community, all these, whatever you want to call it, I think it's like envisioning and having the confidence that there's a small little army, whether it's a big army, you're part of a bigger kind of group or platform or a small army. It's like you have this confidence now because you know that one, you're not going through this alone. Two, you're on the journey with other people. So that helps give you the confidence, the encouragement to keep moving. And most importantly, or very importantly, just the resources that you can gain from a network. And so again, through whether it's like picking up your book and looking and talking to people who can relate in that sense, listening to podcasts, reading the blogs, finding the online communities. Because what I see too is that sometimes you can't necessarily open up at first or connect with people in real life. You meet online allies where you're like, oh, wow, this person, I feel like understands me or was going through what I'm going through. And so you start from there and then you eventually get the courage to open up to maybe someone else that you know in real life and bring them on into the circle. And it's almost like this effect where I'm so happy that I'm able to share your story on my platform where I know that it will be beneficial for someone who is actually going through what you're going through or who has a parent who's going through what you're going through. And then again, as a cautionary tale, but now you don't have to necessarily land up where I landed, but if you do, you'll be okay because here's how you'll get through it. So I just want to thank you so much, Elizabeth, for coming on and sharing your story. I'm going to link everything we talked about or most of the things that we talked about in the show notes for this episode and let everyone know where they can find you, where they can pick up your book and whatever else you want to end with. The book is available on Amazon. So you can find it there, 55 Unemployed and Faking Normal. The new edition, 55 Underemployed and Faking Normal, will be available in early January. So you can buy the book now or pre-order the other book. The TED Talk is called An Honest Look at the Personal Finance Crisis. So if you just go to TED and put that in, An Honest Look at the Personal Finance Crisis, you can find the TED Talk there, which summarizes some of this that we've talked about today. And just thank you so much for this conversation. I have really 
enjoyed it and talking to you. Thank you for reaching out and helping me to reach your audience. All right. Awesome. I could have asked you a million more things, but I didn't want it to get too long, but I really do feel like this will be helpful for a lot of people. No, I really enjoyed it. This is one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done, and I've done a few. Oh, wow. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Okay, so how was that? Wasn't Elizabeth amazing with how she just told her story, stepping into her truth? I think that if you have someone who's a bit older, who you know is struggling and maybe has some shame around what's happening, share this episode with them. Tell them to go to journeyslaunch.com slash episode 59. Send them this link and have them listen to it. Also, look at her TED Talk, share the TED Talk with them, even yourself, even if you directly are not in this situation, I strongly advise you go look at her TED Talk and listen to the whole thing. In general, I really think that we can't always predict. I know the whole genesis of this podcast, what we're trying to reach is financial independence. And great if we have the option to retire early. That's a lot of our goals, right? To do what we want in life. But what happens if maybe you had a later start or you get sidetracked or you backtracked and you're not able to hit the goals you want to hit? What do you do then? How resilient are you? How can you really step into the truth and then allow that to propel you forward and get out of whatever situation you're in? So hope you really enjoy that episode. Again, episode show notes are at journeytolaunch.com slash episode 59. Let me know what you thought of this. Love hearing your feedback. Remember, I'm Journey to Launch on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So that's how you tag me. If you're listening to this, screenshot it, at me, post it, let me see. If you want to continue the conversation, you can join the private Facebook community at journeytolaunch.com slash community. That's going to redirect you to the Facebook group. You can join. We always have conversations about the episode. So love to hear you guys talk about it in there. Okay. Again, thanks for listening. I'll chat with you next week, journeyers. Journeyers.